Well, you know what chapter we're going to look at tonight? And you know what verse? And it's in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to read again uh, two verses, verse 6 and verse 7. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and verse 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment, and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, let me get the old enemy in front of me, which is uh, time. Now, if you've been coming the last few Sunday evenings, you know, of course, that we have been working our way through the different names and different titles given to our wonderful Lord here in Isaiah chapter 9. And we have already considered three of them. We've looked at Wonderful, Counselor, and then this, uh, last week we were thinking of Mighty God. And tonight we're going to have a look at the fourth one, which is the Everlasting Father. And it's probably true to say that uh, of the, the five names or five titles given to our Lord Jesus here at Isaiah chapter 9, that this one uh, presents us with a, a wee problem, a wee difficulty. Because as the verse commences, for unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given. And then almost in the same breath, Isaiah says his name should be called the Everlasting Father. If he is the son, how can he be the father? So you see immediately a little problem we have to try and work out this evening. And that will necessitate... Uh, given some teaching with regard to uh, the Trinity. Because as believers, we are Trinitarians. We believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And before we get into this particular title, we have to take the time to have a look at the great subject of uh, the, the Trinity. Now, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. You can search from Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't appear. But what does appear is, of course, the doctrine, the teaching of the Trinity. And um, I'm going to ask um, Graham, oh, yes, it there. Before they call, I will answer. <laughs> now, uh, can you all see it there? Mm -hmm. Good. Now, actually, this is an illustration that was used by uh, a missionary to the Muslims, a missionary by the name of Raymond Lull. 
way back in the 14th century AD and he is actually martyred for his faith in the year 1315. And this was the illustration that Raymond Lull used to try and speak to the Muslims with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity because the Muslims do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe that God had a son. And so this was the illustration that he used way back in the 14th century AD. Now the purpose of the illustration, as you can probably see, is to establish two things. First of all, to show that each of the members of the Trinity, the Father up in the apex, the triangle, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that uh, they are God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Godhead, the Deity. And then the second uh, point of the illustration is to show that there are distinctions in the Trinity, in the Godhead, and uh, if, we're, if we're not careful, we can, we can get a bit confused. And that is why we have an illustration that the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. There are distinctions in the Trinity. And immediately we realize that we are in to a, a greater mystery. Over the years I've been asked many questions of a theological nature and just recently a dear woman said could you explain the Trinity to me? And of course I had to confess immediately I'm sorry my dear I cannot explain the Trinity. There's no preacher, there's no minister, there's no theologian, there's no philosopher who can explain the Trinity. And even the Apostle Paul, with his great intellect, he had to say, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And the Trinity is one of those great doctrines taught in the scripture, which we can never, not even in eternity, be able to, to comprehend. But it is clearly taught in the Bible. Because when you turn, when you open your Bible... You go to the book of Genesis, of course, and right at the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, you have a reference, an inkling with regard to the Trinity. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we have the Lord saying, let us make man in our image. Now, the word God in Genesis 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, in the Hebrew language, when a, a name ends in I am Elohim, that signifies that it is in the plural, more than one. And when God says, Elohim says, let us, we ask the question, we ask, well then, who is he talking to? Uh, some would say, when I, perhaps he was talking to the angels. Well, of course, we can dismiss that immediately because we are not made in the image of angels. We are made in the image of God. And the only conclusion we can come to when God Elohim said, let us make man, is that he was speaking to the Son 
and speaking to the Holy Spirit, the other members of the Trinity. So right at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, you have the inkling, the hint, with regard to the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. Then, of course, when you turn to the New Testament, you find that there are references to the Trinity. For example, our Lord's Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, he said, Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So there we have a reference to the Trinity. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he would make reference to the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in the Old Testament, the New Testament, there are many references with regard to the glorious Trinity. So remember that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit God, fully God, co-equal, co-eternal, but within the Trinity there are distinctions. They're all co-equal, co-eternal, but uh, they are three separate persons. Now, of course, in mathematics, one plus one plus one equals three, but in theology, one plus one plus one equals one. One of those great mysteries that we shall never be able to fully comprehend. And I'm glad of that because if I, a mere creature, finite, if I could comprehend God, well then, if I could say reverently, he wouldn't be worth serving and worshipping. But I'm so glad tonight that I cannot explain him. He is wonderful. We sang the night, amazing God. Now then, when we come to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, unto us a son is born, a given. His name should be called the everlasting Father. We look at this and we realize, well then, he is not uh, the Father. So we can dismiss that immediately. It's not the Son and the Father all in one. Now I mention that because uh, way back in the early days there were many heresies. And one of the heresies was this, I think I touched upon it last week, one of the heresies was this with regard to the, the doctrine of God, that some believed that there was one God, just one God, but at times he would manifest himself as the Father, and then other times he would manifest himself as the Son, and then other times manifest himself as the Holy Spirit. Now that of course is not what the Bible teaches that destroys immediately the distinctions, the separate persons in the Godhead. How could John 3 and 16 be correct? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So, when we come tonight to think of the everlasting Father, we must dismiss immediately the Son is not the Father. They are distinct one from the other. Okay then, how are we going to explain the, the title, The Everlasting Father? 
Well, if you were a Jew or a Jewess, and you were reading Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 9 and verse 6, you would have no difficulty at all. But we're not Jews, we're not Jewesses tonight, we're Gentiles. But in a Jewish mind, there'd be no problem. Because they will look at that word father, and they would see immediately that it really means originator and author. That would be the conception in a Jewish mind with regard to the everlasting father. Actually, it is more literally rendered from the Hebrew, father of eternity. But you see, it's our conception of father in our minds that confuses us, but not in a Jewish minds. The originator, the author of that which is eternal. So, okay then, having established just very briefly and very simply the different persons in the Trinity, we can then come to this wonderful description of the Lord Jesus. And we can state tonight that he is the originator, he is the author of at least five things which are in essence eternal. And that is what we're going to center our thoughts upon this evening. These five things which are eternal. That our Lord Jesus is the originator. He is the author of. First of all then, he came to reveal the eternal father. Now the Bible teaches that God is eternal. Deuteronomy says that the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. So he is eternal. No beginning, no ending. Also it is the Bible teaching that he is immortal. He's not subject to death. He has everlasting life. And the Lord Jesus came from heaven with this purpose to reveal the eternal Father. To bring us, as it were, out of eternity into time. So that we can be able to, to understand him and to know him. Here's what John says in John chapter 1. He says, no man have seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now that word declared is a very interesting word. It is where we get our word exegesis from in our English language. And what I'm trying to do this evening, whether purely or I don't know, it's up to yourself, but uh, I am trying to give you an exegesis. Now that's the meaning of the word that John uses. He hath declared him, he hath exegeted him. He has brought him out of eternity into time and he's going to show us just who and what the Father is. And he is the one who came to reveal the eternal Father. So much so, he could say in John chapter 14, these amazing words. Listen very carefully. He that have seen me, have seen the Father. 
You see Philip say, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. And the Lord said, Philip or Thomas, have I been so long, long time with you, and yet have you not known me? He that have seen me have seen the Father. So if you want to know what the Father's like, look at Jesus. If you want to hear the Father, listen to Jesus, because he has come from heaven to reveal the eternal Father. Now isn't that absolutely amazing? Because of ourselves we could never we could never find him. But our wonderful Lord Jesus, he has stepped from the splendors of heaven and he came with this express purpose to reveal to you and to reveal to me just his eternal Father. And secondly, he came to speak eternal words. Now in John chapter 6, there's a very sad incident in our Lord's life. Because of our Lord's teaching, some of his disciples, they took offense. And because they took offense, it says they walked no more with him. They left him. And then the Lord turned to the twelve disciples and he said, Will ye also go away? Now here's what Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. As if to say, well Lord, if we leave you, there's no else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Uh, dear friends, this evening, the words our Lord, our Lord Jesus spoke were not just ordinary words. They were divine words. And they have an eternality about them. Your words, my words, pass away so quickly. But our Lord said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. There's something eternal about them. They're not just of time. But they deal with eternal things. So he came to reveal the eternal father. And he came to speak eternal words. His words are life. And they are powerful when you think of them. And then of course he came to engage in an eternal work. Now here's your homework tonight dear friends when you go home. When you go home, don't turn on the television. There's really not much on the night. Unless, of course, you're in the sports. Watch the food, Bob, you like it. But I want you to read the, the letter to the Hebrews. There's only 13 chapters. <laughs> I mean, read the letter of Hebrews. I want you to notice that the writer, whoever he was, he mentions five impossible things. Sorry, five eternal things. So your homework tonight, when you go home, is to read the 13 chapters, a pencil in your hand, a bit of paper, and jot down the five eternal things that the writer of the Hebrews mentions. Now, I'm feeling a bit generous this evening. I'll give you one of them. <laughs> and all you have to do is to discover the other four. They're all there in the 13 chapters. And one of the eternal things he mentions in Hebrews is eternal redemption. 
You see, not only did the Lord come from heaven to reveal the Father, we know, of course, that ultimately he went to the cross in order to provide for you and for me an eternal redemption. To forgive our sins, to reconcile us, and to bring us ultimately and finally into heaven itself. And it's all because the Lord engaged in something that was eternal, not just pertaining to time. Now then, after you have uh, discovered the other four eternal things in Hebrews, uh, the other homework you've got. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the records of our Lord's crucifixion. And during the time is on the cross, from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, our time, he uttered seven wonderful sayings. So when you discover the five eternal things, the four eternal things in Hebrews, then you discover the, the seven sayings on the cross. And I'll get you started. One of the signs on the cross was this, coming towards the end. He uttered, it is finished. What was finished? The great work of redemption. Your salvation, my salvation. There's nothing you can add to it, nothing you can take from it. It is finished. And we know that it was satisfactory because God raised him from the dead. So he came to engage in an eternal work. As well to speak eternal words and to reveal the eternal father. And what a job he made of it from beginning to end. But then also he imparts unto his people eternal life. We go to John chapter 10, that lovely portion of scripture. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. And my dear brother and sister this evening, Maybe you don't know it, but when the Lord saved you all those years ago, perhaps just recently, when you called upon him for salvation, you became the possessor of eternal life. Isn't that absolutely wonderful? Eternal life. Because the Bible says that he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son hath not life. If you've got the Son, you've got life. If you haven't got the Son, you haven't got life. But for us who are Christians, when we call upon him for salvation, he gave to us eternal life. Life that's never going to end. Because he said that not in John chapter 10 again, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So you've got spiritual life, you've got abundant life, and you've got eternal life. Step out of these premises this evening. Walk the streets of Moody'sburn. Walk the streets of Glasgow. Where have you come from? What are people looking for? Looking for life. Looking for joy. Looking for satisfaction. 
but they'll never find it because the only place you can get eternal life that satisfies is in God himself drugs can't do it pleasures can't do it money can't do it only God can give this wonderful gift of abundant and eternal life and it's great to know dear friends is not that this life that we've got is never going to end oh yes we may die but uh, that's not the end because when the Lord comes uh, he shall raise us in resurrection glory and we shall go into the countless ages of eternity I love the words of John Newton that a great hymn amazing grace the last verse says when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun with no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. We've got life. We've got abundant life. We've got eternal life. And it came from the Lord Jesus. I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. And there's no force on earth. And there's no force on hell. Can take the believer out of the hand of the Lord Jesus. It just cannot be done. We are secure in him for time and for eternity. But you probably say, wait a minute, Stanley, wait a minute. What is eternal life? Well, we go to John 17, and here's how the Lord Jesus defines it. And he should know. He says, and this is life eternal. What is? That they may know thee, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom thou hast. You see he's praying to his father. What a lovely definition of eternal life. That they may know thee. This is eternal life. That they may know thee. But then you say wait a minute. What kind of knowledge are we talking about? There's theoretical knowledge. There's academic knowledge. But in the Bible, when it speaks of knowledge and knowing, it's not so much academic knowledge or intellectual knowledge. For example, you can go to college or university for three or four years, and during that time, what do you do? You accumulate a, a lot of knowledge, a lot of facts and information, and then you come out with a BA, MA, or if you're very clever, a PhD. You've got academic knowledge. But when the Bible speaks of knowledge, it's not speaking of that sort of knowledge. It is speaking of experiential knowledge. Knowing God personally. Not about him, but knowing him for himself. Now we can even illustrate this. Uh, for example, I know about the Prime Minister. Uh, he lives in 10 Downing Street in London. I know about him, but I don't know him. Never invites me to uh, his house. No, I know about him, but I, I don't know him. I know about the Queen. She lives in Buckingham Palace. Uh, but uh, as yet, she's never invited me to one of our garden parties. Uh, look, look what she's missing. But not invited me to the garden party. You see, I know about the Queen, but I don't know the Queen. And sad to say, many of God's people, many of God's Christians, 
They are content to know about God. And they fill their heads with knowledge, with doctrine, with teaching. Now doctrine teaching is important. But you don't stop there, dear friends. That's not knowing God. You've got to know God personally, intimately, individually. In the secret place, in the place of prayer. Now, do you just know about him? Or do you know him for yourself? Tell me, did you spend time today in his presence? Talking to him. Did you take time reading his words? The only you can answer that question, only I can answer it. But this is how we get to know him. By spending time in his wonderful presence. Speaking to him. Communicating with him. Sharing with him all our problems and difficulties. Have you heard that? Have you ever sung that lovely hymn? No doubt you have. Break thou the bread of life to me. Do the hymn. It's one of the old hymns. Break thou the bread of life. And the hymn writer just hits the nail on the head. And here's what she said in our lovely hymn. They listen very carefully. Beyond the sacred page. I seek thee Lord. My spirit pants for thee. O living word. That's it friends. Beyond the sacred page. This Bible is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. And sadly there are many of God's people. And they are just content to read the Bible. Study theology. Study doctrine. Full stop. Oh no. It's beyond the sacred page. In other words. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to lead us right into the presence of God to engage in worship and praise and adoration so don't stop at your Bible read it, study it, meditate upon it but get beyond the sacred page get in the presence of God and worship him praise him, thank him, adore him turn your eyes upon him and gaze upon his wonderful majesty and glory and isn't it absolutely wonderful that we can get into the presence of God and we can share with him those things upon our heart that you couldn't share with even your husband or your wife or your best friends but you can with the Lord and know what Peter says the big fisher man he says in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 he says casting all your care upon him for he careth for you and sometimes in preaching I would give the congregation a wee test we test in logic now I know you're clever people here in Moody's Burn so this was that no problem to you here's a wee test in logic if you give the Lord all your cares how many have you got left? Now even I can answer the question. If you give the Lord all your cares, well then it stands to reason. You've got none left. Ah, but there are some Christians, they like to keep some cares in reserve. 
they get worried if they've got nothing to worry about. But Peter says, casting, not some of them, not many of them, not most of them, but casting all your cares upon him. So tonight, dear friends, in the week that lies ahead, you're not going to have a care. And nobody, nobody said amen. amen. Now, do you, sound, am I speaking up for you? Am I preaching okay tonight? As it sounds, as it sounds, I have to say, my dear brother, he knows, he knows. Dear friends, this works. This isn't academic. That's in your Bible. You've read it dozens of times. The thing is, why not put it into practice? You've heard the story, no doubt, of the three young men. They got together and they were discussing the different translations of the Bible. And of course, you know, there's a multiplicity of translations today. I have about 30 at home in my study. And they were just discussing the different translations. Once when I, I like the revised version. I like the, the amplified version. Uh, I like the different versions. And one of them kept very quiet. And then they asked him, well, come on. Tell us, what's your favourite uh, translation? We've told you ours. Well, he said, um, I love my mother's translation. Oh, I didn't know your mother was a Hebrew scholar, a Greek scholar. What do you mean by your mother's translation? Well, he says, I love my mother's translation because she translates it into everyday action. Isn't that lovely? Everyday action. And that's what we do. We go to the presence of God. We've got our worries. We've got our problems. We've got our cares. And we just cast them all upon him. And his shoulders are omnipotent. He can bear them. Now sometimes we sing a lot of hymns. A lot of lies in church. Ever notice that? We say a lot of lies in church without knowing it. You say, Sonny, what do you mean? Well, take that lovely hymn by Joseph Scriven. What a friend we have in Jesus. How many times we've been in this very meeting. You've stood up and you've sang. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to bring everything to God in prayer. Everything to God in prayer. You've been singing it. Are you saying the lie? Do you bring everything to God in prayer? Or maybe the big things. But everything. Oh what peace we often forfeit. Oh what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything. Everything. Everything to God in prayer. I've been greatly blessed through the, the ministry and teaching of George Muller. Now, I didn't know him personally. He, he lived in the 19th century. I'm not that old. He lived in the 19th century. And I've been greatly encouraged by George Muller. In his lifetime, he catered for nearly 10,000 orphans, boys and girls. No mother, no father. He fed them. He educated them. He schooled them. Nearly 10,000 in his lifetime without asking anybody for one penny. And in his lifetime, he gained nearly 
one and a half million pounds in today's value probably about 10 or 12 million pounds without asking anybody for a penny. How do they do it? By simply praying about it and trusting God and God provided every need. Imagine 10,000 orphans and God never failed them on any occasion. Uh, one interviewer went to see the great George Muller. Uh, when he got there, he was actually writing something. And then the interviewer noticed just for a few seconds, uh, he closed his eyes. And then he opened his eyes again. And the interviewer was a wee bit intrigued. Uh, and he said, well, tell me, Mr. Muller, we're not feeling too well. I saw you with your eyes closed. We're not feeling? Oh, oh no, he says. He says... I was having trouble with the nib on my pen. And I was asking my Heavenly Father about it. Now, what would you have done? What would I have done? Threw the pen away. Got another one. Ah, but he who could get over a million and a, one and a half million pounds realized that even trouble with his nib wasn't too small or insignificant for his heavenly father. My, what a blessing that was when I read that. And the thing is, George Muller's God is your God. He's your God. You know, I get a wee bit concerned with Christians today. You know what's happening? They're living on second-hand experiences. Now, I don't know where the nearest bookshop, Christian bookshop here. Do you have to go to Glasgow? There's one in Motherwell, the Globe Centre. Many of God's people, what they do, they go into the Globe Centre. And they go to the biographical section. And they take out about it, Billy Graham, this man, that man. And they read the light, and that's wonderful. But they're living on second-hand experiences. They need to know God for themselves. Because George Muller's God is your God. And he's my God. And if he bless Muller, he can bless you. Now I know some Christians, they've got this idea, Ah, Stanley, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> You're talking about George Muller. He had a special gift of faith. You're not getting off the hook so easily, dear friends. Read his life story. And George Muller denied categorically that he had a special gift of faith. He says any Christian could do what I've been doing. Faith in God. You see, God honors faith because faith honors God. So, are we getting this, dear friends? He came to reveal the eternal Father. He came to speak eternal words. He came to engage in eternal work. He imparts unto his people eternal life. And then, very quickly to conclude, he ever leads, he ever lives to lead us into an eternal inheritance. Do you know, dear Christian, there is an inheritance waiting for you it's, in, it's in, incorruptible it's undefiled and it fades not away and it's reserved in heaven for you 
And I love those words that Paul says, The eye hath not seen, the ear has not heard, neither has the heart of man conceived the things that God has in store for them that love him. You see, for the Christian, the best is yet to be. And our Lord Jesus is living, and he's going to make sure that you get your inheritance when you get to uh, heaven itself. He ever lives to make intercession for you, and it's guaranteed you will get your inheritance, and it will never, never, never fade away. But let me conclude by giving you a lovely quotation from a great Christian writer. And here's what he says. If you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? If you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus Christ. Because he specializes in eternal things. So when we think of him as the everlasting father, we realize that uh, he's not the father, but he is the originator. He is the author of those things which are in essence uh, eternal. He inspired them and he brings them into existence. Now the Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to conclude a little series of studies and we're going to think of him in a lovely last title name Prince of Peace what a lovely title Prince of Peace and we'll be touching upon certain aspects of eschatology you're saying Stanley what does that big word mean eschatology well it simply means it means the doctrine of the last things of you like Bible prophecy what the future holds for the church for Christians for the world and we're going to see that in that particular context that one day our Lord Jesus is going to reign on this planet of ours as the Prince of Peace so make a date for next Sunday don't miss it it's the last in the message, and I do trust, dear friend, that these messages have been a blessing to you. And I've been speaking to my Heavenly Father, and I've been asked a specific request. I said, Lord, I want those people in Moody's Burn not to leave those meetings every Sunday saying, what a great sermon we had tonight, or perhaps, what a, what a good preacher. Oh, no. I said, dear Lord, let it be that they shall leave the meeting saying what a wonderful saviour we have in the person of the Lord and if that happens then my preaching will have not been in vain turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and then next Sunday, ultimately, the Prince of Peace. Thank you for listening.